Hi, I'm Sheila Lecce with the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, and this is our podcast, Meet the Investigators. In this series, we get to know the investigative journalists we work with every day at ICIJ. We start the Year of the Tiger with, can I say it, one of my favorite ICIJ members. I'm Namini Vijaydasan, and I am the Deputy Editor Investigations for the Sunday Times in Sri Lanka. Namini got her start in journalism while she was still a teenager. I was forced to go into journalism because I had problems at home. And there was an advertisement in the newspaper. And I had just turned 18. And I applied for it and went into it. At that time, I was anyway good at writing and at English. But that's not necessarily all you need for journalism. I went into journalism with a sense of idealism. Um, I think that, though, was inculcated in me by my family, and that never died. When Namini joined the Sunday Times as a young reporter, it was 1994. Sri Lanka was in the middle of a brutal civil war, which pitted separatists from the Tamil minority against government troops. Government forces systematically shelled hospitals with evidence that civilians suffered rape, torture and execution. The Tamil Tiger rebels are also accused of using civilians as hostages and using child soldiers. Namini kicked off their career as one of few women covering that ferocious conflict. So I went to for war coverage very early in my life, I think in my early 20s, when uh, newspaper officers were not really encouraging women to go out because I suppose they felt uh, protective maybe of their women or there was a culture that only men would go out because there's so many men on the field. A few of us fought that. I can very clearly remember fighting that in my office and I did start going out pretty early. And then sooner or later, it became quite normal to find women on, in the war front. There would be organized visits sometimes. You know, they would take us there, show us stuff and bring us back fast. I would go in the morning on a military flight, take those risks and come back and not really even tell my parents. And at that time, it was pretty bad. There were suicide bombings all the time. The war ended in 2009, claiming a total of nearly 100,000 lives over three decades. My intention in the war was not really the military action, but it was to show how people are the same because there was a divide between the Tamils and the Sinhalese, which still exists to today. But the more I went, the more I realized that grief is the same. You feel grief the same way. Death is the same. You feel death the same way. You die the same way. The economic challenges you face, the depression you face, the uncertainty about tomorrow, Everything is the same for people. So my intention as I grew into war coverage was to show that to people through my writing. Why did you decide to become an investigative journalist? I did many things over the years. And then it just happened that none of those things challenged me enough. So I always wanted to dig deeper. And then it came to, you know, uh, more awareness, uh, even through the internet about what uh, investigative journalism is because when I started out in 94 we didn't have the internet and my sense of curiosity and justice never died and investigative journalism was the perfect way to cater to that. Investigations really thrill me because it's information that that is hidden and for me it's a real challenge to dig and try to get people to open up even the psychology of interviews even the assessment of people on how to approach them, on what strategy will work best. So I happened into journalism by chance. 
But then I grew into it and I can't imagine doing anything else. What's the thing that you most like about it? It's just that everyone, when you're frustrated by what's going on around you, you don't have the chance to do anything about it. But as a journalist, if there are questions out there that you see, for instance, nowadays on social media, you can actually pick up the phone and hold people to account. You can get the answers. I can't imagine not being able to do that. You know, not being able to pick up the phone and ask the questions that need to be asked or meet somebody and hold them to account. I might not always get the answers I want, but the ability to do so, I can't live without it anymore. It was Namini's perseverance that in 2014 led her to a groundbreaking investigation. She exposed how top Sri Lankan government officials paid more than $6 million to a Pakistani-American lobbyist named Imad Zuberi to rehabilitate the country's image after the war. He was posing as a middleman between the government and U.S. lobbyists. And he took a lot of money from the Sri Lankan government because at the time they had just ended a brutal war and they wanted to really clean up their image in the U.S. And Imad Zuberi came to Sri Lanka and and they had stars in their eyes and they passed off $6 million to Imad Zuberi and his wife just through the central bank. Most of cabinet ministers didn't know. A lot of the country didn't know, except the Sunday Times did report it, but nobody cared. And in the end, $6 million was lost. The investigation was a joint collaboration between Namini at the Sunday Times and Bill Ellison at Foreign Policy magazine. As a result, in 2021, a U.S. court sentenced the lobbyist to 12 years for hiding his identity as a foreign agent and other crimes. This is the kind of thing I think investigative journalists want, because honestly, there's no money in this. People hate you and the glory of it. Like when a story breaks, they think, oh, that's really great. But it's short lived unless there is an impact. And this is what we've all been fighting for in investigative journalism. Can you tell me more about the investigation? Did you use a particular technique or anything that helped you get the story? It's not a technique I used. The source was pure luck, to be honest. The government has had just changed. The person I asked, I had known for a while, and he came back into the administration. And he said, yeah, sure, I'll check and see if it's there. And these documents that we needed to prove that money was sent to Imad Zuberi were still at the central bank. They were among documents that were not destroyed. So my source gave them to me and actually the sense of excitement I felt when I went through them and I saw that they were telegraphic transfers and and basically proof of money going emails between these key players in that administration saying pass the money, pay the money, all of those things. I just asked for it. Bill did a lot of work in the U.S., so I was extremely lucky because he was very well connected with the Department of Justice, and he's a superb investigative journalist. Um, And I did my part here, which is basically analyze the numbers, look at all the documents. My interest was how much money had we been spending. I analyzed all of it, and I wrote about six stories, just calculating, adding up, adding up, adding up, and seeing just how much we had spent spent and on whom. And is it risky? Is it dangerous? How is it being an investigative journalist who asks so many questions in Sri Lanka? It depends always on who is in administration, who is in the government. For instance, there was one administration here that introduced the Right to Information Act after many, many years of campaigning. And they also went as far as to start proactive disclosure. 
But then the government changed again. And there was a period of time when we didn't really know what would happen to the right to information, whether they would repeal it or whether they would weaken the commission. So when that sort of administration comes in, you're living in uncertainty. At the worst of times, I had to encounter low-level intimidation. It didn't go as far as assault or murder, but there were visits by intelligence officers to, to my home, um, to my street, asking pointed questions and making sure it was conveyed to me that I knew that I was being watched. There was a time when many other journalists also had um, visits to their homes. When, when they come to your home or to your parents' home, it's a completely different thing from you know, stopping you on the street or coming to your office and questioning you. This is a clear message because it affects family and they get very worried. And that's one way of being able to shut us up because, because the pressure you face from family is often very high. I face that pressure too. And I understand it. I understand the stress my husband was going through at the time, why he told me that if I don't stop what I'm doing, just go, go away because it was affecting the children. So there have been times of extreme stress. And what do you do in those situations? One thing I have done over my career is always stay in an institution. And I've been fortunate to have editors who can understand the threat and who support me. And there are times when we do threat assessments, my editors and I, we do take up stories and think, okay, do we do this? And what are the repercussions? Or do we wait for a better time? The story doesn't die, but sometimes we have to wait till we're able to tell it. Something I was told, my stepmother told me actually, is that a dead journalist is of no use to anyone when I was taking too many risks. And that has stayed with me a lot. So there are times when you go forward more adventurous than other times. And there are times where you just draw back and wait for stuff to pass. But things have changed because of social media, I must say, for at least in Sri Lanka. Before social media became such a thing, um, we were very much alone. So we were identified targets. But now it's coming at them, the administration, any administration, it comes at them from multiple quarters. So in a way, they, they actually value professional journalism more because the attacks on them and the questions raised by social media is, applies far more pressure on them. Since the war ended, members of the Rajapaksa family, who were prominent government officials during the war, have dominated the country's politics, with the exception of a four-year hiatus. Mahinda Rajapaksa, the former president, is now prime minister. When in 2019 his brother Gotabaya was elected president, many journalists were on the alert. The president, who was the defense secretary before, during the time of the war, and he was known to be quite ruthless. Now he's far more accountable as president than he was as the Secretary of Defense, where he could do stuff and he was basically a civil servant. Now he, he's the man at the top. And also, they're very concerned about how social media treats them. Another thing is that they, we have multiple crises. Forget about COVID, the fact that our economy is almost in utter distress. So circumstances have maybe made it less dangerous than we thought it would be. For Namini, collaborating with other journalists has been a way to overcome the uncertainties surrounding press rights in our country. I think collaboration also protects people like us. For instance, the story I'm working on now, if I did it alone by myself, it would be me and my institution having to face it. But then if the other institution abroad, which has much wider, wider reach and is far more well-known in the world, is also doing the same story, we can share that risk. You're not alone. 
information sharing and the brainstorming is just amazing. That's been an incredible learning process because in Sri Lanka, the capacity for in, in investigative journalism is still growing and that comes through people like us. And when people like us get to collaborate with journalists abroad who have far more access and more training, we develop as the story progresses. Even internally, when I started journalism, journalists wouldn't share phone numbers. They were really protective. They wouldn't share the names of their sources. Whereas now in my office, we just shout out phone numbers or we just, I mean, you know, in a secure environment, but we share everything because it shows that you can't grow alone. Speaking of collaborations, Namini also worked on ICIJ's latest investigation, the Pandora Papers, which involved 600 reporters worldwide. Based on a leak of about 12 million records, it exposed how the world's ultra-rich and powerful use shell companies in tax havens to hide wealth and multiply their riches. In Sri Lanka, the files unveiled details on the offshore holdings of Nirupama Rajapaksa, a former minister and a relative of the country's current president and her husband. The ICIJ says they had used one company to buy luxury apartments in London and Sydney. According to the leak, Tirukumar Nadeshan had set up a company to obtain consultancy contracts from foreign companies. These foreign companies had been doing business with the Sri Lankan government. Rajapaksa and Nadeshan have declined to comment on the allegations. People have known for years that some Sri Lankan politicians used shell companies to hide money or do business deals. But in this case, there were actual names of some prominent people in the leak. What's the significance of this investigation, do you think? It sort of vindicates what we've been saying or hinting at all these years, right? That there is corruption at the highest levels. What we didn't have was evidence of it. So personally, you feel a sense of vindication because it's a divisive sort of environment you're working in. So when you talk about some politician who might be corrupt and there are indications that certain things happen like commissions or bribes changing hands, you get attacked by supporters of those people. So the, here is proof, here is proof that these things do happen. It doesn't have to be a particular party or a particular, I mean, in Pandora Papers in Sri Lanka, we covered people from two parties. And one of those parties was supposed to be very clean. One of the people was very close to the former administration, the immediate past administration, which was called good governance government. And nobody really knew what he had been up to till, till it was found in the Pandora Papers. Nobody knew. The leaked files also included information on Ramalingam Paskaralingam, also known as Paski. A top Sri Lankan bureaucrat for decades, Paski used shell companies to buy property in London and secretly finance a school in the outskirts of Colombo. Just imagine if we didn't have this. If we didn't have this kind of information coming out, the world would be such a useless place. Shortly after ICIJ and its media partners published the findings last October, President Gotabaya Rajapaksa announced he'd set up a committee to investigate. It's very common for them to say the president has appointed a committee or, or a, an investigative body in order to look further into the matter. And everyone's like applauding and saying, oh, that's great. Where's the report? There's no report. The bribery commission did nothing with it. The bribery commission has not caught any big fish ever, as far as I can tell. But plenty of cases went there. They just died a natural death. 
and spent a long time trying to analyze this nothing happening in Sri Lanka business, right? Because this is not the first time. There are times when I get extremely depressed about it, like really depressed. I can feel it weighing down on me. And then I snap out of it because we still have to work. But the point is, I've realized that everyone is corrupt here. Everyone. So the systems are broken. The systems are corrupt. This is the point where um, I think that Sri Lankan journalism has to become bigger and stronger. But the fact is that investigative journalism is attractive to very few people for some reason. One thing is that there's fear when young people enter journalism. The influence of families is very great. And ultimately, I have found that a lot of journalists themselves get compromised, not necessarily by money, but the fact that in today's world, selfie journalism, where the person becomes more important than the story, that is really having a huge impact on how reporting is done. Because you go to a press conference, for instance, with, with say important people, VIPs, right? You have people taking selfies and putting them up on Facebook, on social media to show they've been there. I've been there becomes the bigger story than going there and doing their job. Politicians and corrupt people know how to get to you. Really, it doesn't take much now. I feel it's a turning point, a transition. I feel old fashioned in the way I'm doing stuff, but maybe we'll go full circle where we will go through this phase, which is not very nice, and come back to real journalism. I don't know. You told me you train younger reporters as part of your job. What do you teach them? What's the advice you always give them? I have three girls. Uh, incidentally, it's mostly women that, that join my desk. I've taught them to be honest, just not to get carried away. I listen to them asking questions. I correct them in the manner they approach people. Every little thing that I, I can possibly teach them, I do. Because I also have a feeling like, Maybe I'm fatalistic that we don't have much time, you know, on earth to do what we have to do and that we need to leave people behind. We are actually running on passion. It's not money. It's nothing else. It's just the passion. So what I'm trying to teach them is to be passionate about what they do and never to lose the sense of idealism. Because I know we can't have ideal society, but we have to be able to aim at something. To hold your head up high, don't do the selfie journalism thing not to be the story, tell the story. I mean, so many things that, that they need to absorb, but I'd be happy if, if they stay on. I'm, I'm not sure if they will. Mm, let's hope they do with such a teacher. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to come across like it's all very rewarding and happy thing that we do. I don't want them to think that it's a miserable job either, but it's just that it's hard, but, it's, but somebody's got to do it. If we were not in the picture, I don't think societies have a chance of improving or even functioning normally. But you keep fighting. Yeah, you too. And that's it for this episode of our Meet the Investigators podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Please send us your feedback at social at icij.org. And don't forget to tell your friends. If you can, please share it on social media and use the hashtag Meet the Investigators. Thanks for listening. Ciao.